let's talk science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Welcome to a new podcast episode on MindWise. My name is Nina, and today I spoke to Dr. Stefan Schleim, Associate Professor in Theory and History of Psychology. I hope you are as excited as I was to learn about why we need a theory of science and what the global pandemic has to do with living our best and most authentic lives. So let's go. Hello, Stefan. First of all, thank you very much that you are here with me today. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? <laughs> I'm also good. Thank you. So we have a lot of interesting topics to talk about today. And I would like to start with a course you're currently teaching for psychology students in the second year, Theory of Science. And Theory of Science is not a course you would necessarily expect in the curriculum of every psychology program. What do you think makes this course special in its theoretical approach and also in the way that you teach it? Yes, it is, uh, it is correct. And to my knowledge, we are actually the only university in Europe which offers this training in the theory and the history of psychology as we are doing in Groningen. And I find it very important to teach also our students a bit about the preconditions of research. So uh, as Thomas Kuhn explained several decades ago, there's a period that is called normal science. And this is a period where the scientists are very productive. They are publishing many papers. They have many research projects. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that um, we also must be aware of, for example, definitions that are used, preconditions that are made. I mean, presently, we are in a very interesting time because in statistics, if you think about this, there are, say, old ideas, you could say, that had been accepted for a long time. They are now questioned again. And in a way, what philosophers and philosophers of science are doing, they are continuing to think about such foundational problems. And you could imagine that if you think too much about such problems, then maybe you're less productive. That's also why some researchers don't want to do this as much. But um, because we also gain a lot of knowledge, we understand better in the end how science is working and also how the scientific knowledge that we get in the end, um, how that can be understood and how that should be interpreted. Mm -hmm. And how is that important for students? I mean, as students, can't we just take the knowledge that science produces and teach that instead of thinking about how it is produced? <laughs> I would say that uh, it's never, never too early to start teaching these theoretical and philosophical um, aspects also. And I mean, our students, uh, people like you, <laughs> you are not just only mm -hmm. the students or the, the psychologists, the scientists of the future, but you are also citizens. And actually, I think that many of the aspects that we are covering in my courses, um, also in the third year course, Philosophy of Psychology, they should also be partially general knowledge because you see so many debates nowadays in the public think about climate research, think about health, healthy aging, such topics, or neuroscience. A few decades ago, we had this big uh, free will debate where also implications for the legal system were, um, were called for by some scientists. I think that also s um, citizens at large should be able to understand better how scientific knowledge is produced and under which conditions it is produced and how that under certain um, conditions can have implications for the reliability of this knowledge. 
Yeah, and given that most of our students will probably end up in an applied working environment, like how can, for example, knowing the difference between positivism and falsification in science mm -hmm. also inform their professional careers later on? Yeah, that's a tough question, maybe. <laughs> and uh, for that reason, actually, maybe, maybe I can tell you, when I was studying theory of science myself, the course was completely different. So the whole term we would think about questions like what is truth, uh, what is knowledge, how we can gain knowledge. So this was a really very theoretical, only philosophical course. And I, in the courses I'm teaching at now in Groningen, and in the course of the years, I actually made it more and more applied. Um, so after covering some of the historical and the foundational aspects, I invite the students to take recent debates. I mean, I mentioned the free will debate already. Now we are also talking about health and mental health. We are talking also about gender, where new findings are also calling some of the old definitions, some of the old classifications into question. So I think that whether you become an organizational psychologist or a clinical psychologist, uh, there will always be situations where it can be good to understand, for example, how intelligence is defined and which different alternatives there could be or with the history of the mental health system as we have it now with the classifications, which actually in the recent years are criticized also more in public. So there's always more inf um, attention from the public on actually what we are doing, on which definitions this is based. So I think particularly actually, actually also for those working in the more applied fields, it is to some extent important to know about the philosophical backgrounds of these, these topics. Yeah. Okay, and what would be the one thing in your course that you would like your students to remember in 10 years time when they look back on theory of science? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, maybe the most important thing I would hope that my students will remember is that they should not confuse people with descriptions or labels of people. I mean, particularly in clinical um, in clinical psychology or clinical neuroscience, this is very salient in the sense that, or maybe in the whole area of medicine, you know, that sometimes people get a, a label, a diagnosis, and then clinicians, not, not everybody, but some clinicians, they maybe tend to not look for individual aspects anymore, and they are reinforcing over and over again what the diagnosis says, what the label says. So I think if, um, and in, in many other aspects, if we think about, as I said before, maybe the results of an intelligence test or so, if you just learn a bit about how these systems are based on definitions and that they could be different and that they are actually changing in the course of history, there's a lot of evidence for that, that you then also keep asking questions and keep also maybe critically testing your own knowledge. Is this really the correct picture or might there be alternative explanations? Might there be better ways to deal with people in the broad sense? Yeah, yeah, I agree that this is very important. Also, yeah, in front of the background that the DSM, for example, the classification mm. system is constantly changing and we need to ask why is it changing, on which grounds and is the current means of classifying mental disorders really the best one or is it useful even? Yes, indeed, and also to have more awareness who is actually changing these definitions and these categories and what, diff uh, what interests they might have. So... Um, and actually, why is there a DSM at all? Not many people are aware that this was very, a very individual choice by the psychiatrists in the United States, that they, after the Second World War, said, we have, want to have our own classification system, whereas uh, almost all of medicine at large uses the classification system of the World Health Organization. So it's already interesting to know that there are per, um, particular interest groups behind that, 
And I'm not saying that, that what they are deciding doesn't make sense. I'm just saying that we should be aware of their own interests and their aims and maybe also limitations. For example, in transcultural psychiatry, that's very obvious that if these these categories that are defined, that they are based on research mostly, when they are applied, for example, in Africa or in Asia, then there may be misunderstandings. So we must be aware of the cultural background also of such classification systems. Mm. Yeah, just because you, you said it, and I think I remembered from when I took the theory of science course last year, that the DSM, in fact, is not really statistical. Yeah, so this is uh, also a critique that one of our professors, Peter de Jonge, who is now also our present director of research at the Institute, has made. So he is actually also very critical of the DSM, and this was one of the points that I picked up from him, so that... Um, that the, the DSM is very much based on very limited, I mean, in some extent, to some extent at least, on very limited observations of clinical populations only, and not so much on representative groups of the population at large. And there, Peter de Jonge is doing, in my view, groundbreaking research. But uh, so if you want to learn more about the details, then maybe he would be a good person to also interview. Yeah. Um, but the, <laughs> in, as far as, as my own mm, teaching and research is, Uh, is concerned, I would particularly try, like to point out that these are decisions by certain influential um, particular psychiatrists from the United States uh, who have a certain view on the problem and who have a certain background also and that there might be different answers to the questions how we should classify mental disorders, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very good bottom line that you said that you want your students to remember that the label is not equivalent with the person. Indeed, yeah. And I really, really valued the course Theory of Science because I always felt it really sparked uh, critical thinking. So uh, I need to talk today also a bit about the elephant in the room. Uh, we have a global pandemic at the moment. And of course, the whole education system is changing uh, at the moment. And Due to the switch to online education, you are also delivering your lectures online. And I would be interested if there are already any lessons that you have learned from this new format of teaching. Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I think that when one, one lesson, or maybe let me briefly tell how I solved the problem. So what I'm now doing is actually a bit similar to what we are doing right now. So. On every Monday, I will record my lecture like a, a podcast and I will upload the slides. And then my students um, are also invited to join a live meeting uh, then on Tuesday, which is then during the regular lecture time. Because I thought that it doesn't make so much sense to have the lecture on a live if the people will just see somebody moving on the video stream. Uh, and I would have almost 600 students, so it would also be very difficult to take care of maybe responses while I'm lecturing. So that would be a bit difficult. So I split it into two, the lecture and then the online meeting. And, uh, and one conclusion that I, that I draw is uh, that it works also like this. So I got actually surprisingly good feedback so far by some students, which is also important for me because uh, when you're teaching online, that's maybe a second lesson, then, uh, then the personal interaction that we have in the lecture hall even if it's a very anonymous setting with, I mean, in your groups, maybe there were 400 students, now I have almost 600 students, uh, there's still some feedback. And in the break, for example, some students come or after the after the course, students come and they ask questions and they start discussing, uh, which is precisely what I want to stimulate also students. So this is now all missing and it's more difficult to keep that going in this online setting. So 
I think we learned some positive things. And maybe a third surprising thing is that because when I started the course, the decision by the exam committee was that we would not be allowed to give um, online multiple choice exams. I'm now using a different way that the students have to answer open questions every week, but then in groups because 600 students would be just too many. So I have about 100 groups, which is still a lot of work. But this makes um, a lot of sense in, in didactically speaking. So maybe if that's possible, I will have to sort that out with the exam committee also. If I could give the students in this course only a pass or fail grade as I'm doing it this year, then I would actually try to prefer to continue using these open questions in groups as I'm doing it now because I find that this makes much more sense really than, um, than just multiple choice testing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very interesting indeed. And are there any other like new insights also generally from this period of, um, yeah, of isolation that we have at the moment that you consider implementing to your teaching once we return back to the normal state? Yeah, I think the most important thing I already told you that that's about the, the testing about the exam um, but maybe I, I would like you to answer also as a philosopher of science or philosopher of psychology because what I think what this this crisis is teaching us globally speaking so not just thinking about what we are doing at the university and which actually is also related to one of the take-home messages that I want to give to the students so what we have seen in the recent decades in science with particular also the 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 rise rise of uh, neuroscience is that there 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 was a very individualistic view on people so at the very extreme um at the very extreme case some very influential researchers said that i just have to look at your brain and then i can explain everything about you i can predict your behavior i can tell what kind of person you are which thoughts you have another crisis actually tells us a point that i try to also bring across for many years already that in the end we human beings we are embodied beings and we are as beings in a social context and now that the social context that we are used to is um, has changed dramatically because of the crisis because of the lockdown and all the safety procedures we actually to a, a larger degree see right now so it's not just a theoretical message anymore but every one of us experiences it actually how much we are depending on the environment on the society in this case and how this also influences our mental states. So I think this is really a very important take-home message, which increases the, the point of view that I want to, to bring across, that we only can understand people if we know enough also about the environment, the society in which they are living. Speaking about the environment and that we are living at the moment, I saw, of course, that you have your own blog and you also write for online magazines. And one topic of your essays online were the increasing focus on performing and succeeding in society at the moment, also in academia and education. And I feel like at least that now in times of quarantine and corona, we have a kind of second chance to check in with ourselves and reflect on the way we live and the path we decided to follow. And what do you think could be some valuable questions that students and maybe also staff members may ask themselves to reflect on the way they work and live in times of these performance demands and time pressures? Yeah, so indeed, this is uh, maybe surprising for some, but I have been addressing the performance society in my course for a long time. And I actually, I recently had a chat with one of our professors at the Institute who also said, why don't we have more attention for the mental health of, of our own students, for example, how they cope with stress in our teaching, for example. And then I could tell, well, I, I have been 
trying to r uh, raise awareness for this for a long time already. And um, I think so that this performance society is something that, that shapes our thoughts and our lives in many respects. And uh, we have to actually see how, how we can continue. So there has been so much pressure, not only on the students with all the, the tests. So nowadays, actually, that's a very different university than the university where I studied. So that more or less every move that the students make uh, is recorded and is graded. And these grades are then uh, important to apply for the master's program and then to apply for PhD programs. So there's actually a lot of control also. And this increases the pressure. And they're very often then um, also additional rules which say, for example, to apply for this program or to go to that place, you will need an average grade of such and such. So this actually puts a lot of pressure on the people. And in science, I mean, we had a completely parallel uh, movement or thought, namely that, for example, the number of publications has to be increased all the time. And um, and also the number of, for example, research grants or whatever. So there's, so that this was a very economic view on, on us human beings. And the idea was always first to quantify everything. And you can actually look back in, at the Bologna Declaration of 1999 of our ministers of education and science in Europe. So they actually explicitly said that everything must be comparable and controllable in that sense. There must be a lot of competition. And, uh, and I think it's a bit short-sighted to not also take into consideration that this will have an effect on the quality of what we're doing, the quality of our teaching. I mean, that, that we have to accept more and more students, for example, because this affects our funding. And then it's a bit naive to think that this doesn't put additional pressure on also the quality of our teaching. So we must be aware of that, the quality of our research also. And I hope that, I mean, we will now have also to wait and see how severe the economic crisis that might be in front of us actually will get. But I think uh, I think what we learned from that is that... Um, that uh, there there are limits and and we cannot go on increasing that any uh, ever more, and when also now an increasing number of people, for example, starts to use certain drugs to uh, stimulant drugs, for example, to to keep up with this performance pressure, I think that we must really be aware of the alternatives that are available to actually ask ourselves, question ourselves, why do we have to do all of this? Why do we always have to quantify everything? And actually, we are usually we are the ones subject to these quantifications, but often we are not actually asked ourselves to propose how our performance should be quantified. So it's a bit like we only can respond to that, and we can never have a say in in uh, how this should work, how these systems should in the end be assessed. So this is something that really should change. Yeah, that that was also what I was about to ask. So do you think the responsibility should be at the students or the researchers to kind of uh, be aware of the performance demands and say no more often or choose a different path? Or do you think the institutions th themselves should reconsider the structures that they themselves are reinforcing? Who is in charge? Yeah, these are interesting philosophical and also political questions. <laughs> and actually, what is an institution? So I would say the institution cannot be understood without the people. And I would actually also like to rather think together and work together with the students than to draw um, a boundary and distinguish people and you're the students and you have to say what we're doing and we are the professors uh, and we're deciding. So I actually think that we all are all together uh, in this society and we all together are under these pressures 
and that we are stronger when we are working together and when we are helping each other than when we are working against each other. So um, I think that m more knowledge, you could say maybe from the bottom up, so from, as I, as I said before, the people who are really affected by these institutions, these systems, they should have more to say and how these systems should be arranged. And in this sense, this is really also our responsibility. And uh, I think here that, that there's also a bit like a vicious circle in the sense that if we are so much under pressure and so much concerned about fulfilling requirements, then we maybe have less mental space also to think about, am I actually agreeing to that? Um, maybe should I say no? Should we do it in a different way? So that's that's and why why I also try to include such topics into my teaching, because I think it's very important to have space for this, for this kind of self-reflection on the individual level, but then also on the level of a whole group, for example, of a whole institution, to to have then the the possibility in the first place to have a discussion and to find uh, conclusions, and then of course we always also would have to convince some decision makers who have just more institutional power than, than we have. Yeah, relating to that question, maybe um, about creating space as well. You are a certified yoga teacher. Yes. And has yoga or the Eastern way of thinking influenced the way you view this topic? So the constant striving for excellence, for example. Yeah, I mean, you could, um, you could first of all ask, what is that excellence actually and who's defining that and is that convincing and i noticed i'm not going into too much details here now but i noticed that some of the people who use this word excellency the most uh, frequently they might not really have a very good excellent uh, record themselves so it's a bit it, it has become a bit a buzzword uh, maybe a marketing word that just tries us also to to make us do all kinds of things and uh, and what i like about yoga and and when I'm when I'm saying yoga, then I should emphasize that I'm not just talking about the gymnastics. So this is now the most popular branch of yoga, like the asanas, the movements. Um, but yoga also as a way of meditation, actually as a way of of self reflection, and um, and by doing this, and I think this is something that in the history of psychology we have forgotten a bit. So psychology in the 20th century has increasingly behaviorism was also an important player here. But it has increasingly been uh, become obsessed with this idea of uh, everything must be objective, everything must be quantifiable. And there are, of course, good arguments for doing science like that. But when we're investigating people, I think we should never forget that we have, well, we have mental processes, we have psychological processes, we have, so to speak, an inner life. And this is something where, where I think where Western psychology has forgotten um, some important aspect of what it means to be human. And uh, you can also see it in, in the popularity of yoga or meditation or many other things in the society at large. So the people actually, they are looking for these solutions from Eastern traditions because we in our Western traditions, we forgot them. Actually, we had that already in our, also in our own past. There's also actually a lot of overlap between East and West. If you look up, look this up uh, deeply enough, then it's nice that you can see there are some very original ancient ideas where, where there was not really such a distinction between East and West, so we have a common cultural heritage also. Um, but um, yoga is then a way to include, say, more self-knowledge and self-reflection, Critical the critical method that I'm applying to, say, the definitions of others, I also want to apply them on my own thoughts and definitions. And then you can, I think, get new insights and also become freer in a sense 
that you might say, no, this is not right, this is not correct, it's not what I want to do, I want to have a different idea about this. And then I'm also taking action to defend that idea, for example. Yeah, yeah, I think um, yoga and also meditation, of course, as a part of yoga even is, is on the rise, certainly. I see it in my generation, um, but also in your generation in parts. And I think it personally, it can very help with focusing on what you're actually studying because you kind of see the contents clearer than just, I don't know, viewing depression on a piece of paper as a part of what you need to study, but actually thinking about what does depression mean, for example, who is affected. It just gives you that space that you talk, that you um, talked about earlier. Yeah, and there I find a bit surprising that that as psychologists, we we often use methods to study the behavior or the mental processes of others, but we are not very often using these methods to question ourselves. And that's actually why sometimes so I have this third year course, Philosophy of Psychology, but sometimes I also like to call this uh, Psychology of Psychology because I think that, you know, we as psychologists, we, we also like to describe biases and decision-making processes of others, for example. But we are, of course, also humans. So, I mean, we should also be aware of that, that our, own, our own mental processes, that they are also important and that they are also dependent on the society and the, the community in which we are and the tradition that we come from. And uh, this is something I think from which we can learn more about ourselves. So here we can actually also combine a bit of, you might say, everyday knowledge and or wisdom maybe even with what we are doing as scientists. So I also don't see these as very different or even contradicting worlds. Actually, I, I try to overcome this distinction and see this world of us human beings as one world, whether we are scientists or not. Yeah, in one of your essays, you were talking about that each one of us has to make the decision whether we want to live an authentic life yeah. or if we want to kind of be carried away by the striving for success and money. And then I was thinking about a, um, about a topic that you also cover in your lectures, namely that of free will mm. that you only uh, uh, that you also touched on earlier. And I thought reflecting on our lives and making changes that bring us more in alignment with our authentic values would require that we in the first place have a free will to make those decisions. And in your teaching, especially in the theory of science course, you discussed the free will debate and you also published papers yourself that investigated uh, that topic further. And now I'm interested, do you personally think that we have a free will? So maybe let me briefly for the those who listen and who don't know the essay, just say that the essay you referred to at the beginning was something that I started writing a couple of years ago when, you know, in my, in my teaching, I, I find it important not to just tell my own opinion or actually my, maybe not even tell it at all. I just want to, to help people to get into a situation where they can make up their own mind, where they can then understand better what knowledge is important and, and to make a decision um, for themselves. So, and uh, so, but then I had students over the years who started asking me, well, but really tell me what is your personal view on that, for example, on the performance society. And then I started writing this essay, which I now have been rewriting for many years already. So it was never published officially, but I made it sometimes available as a voluntary reading. Um, and, and now you relate this to the free will debate. And there I would like to say first that this free will de debate, as it was carried out particularly by some influential philosophers and then some neuroscientists and also some psychologists joined. Um, I find, found that this debate was a bit confused in the sense that, um, or you could say maybe rather framed in a certain way, that it was more also again a, a discussion about definitions, which to some extent is, is of course what I'm also f in favor of, but without 
being aware of the fact that we have had this discussion now for more than 2000 years already. So these old these old um, arguments like in a deterministic world, can there be free will? I mean, it's really very old um, um, discussions and, and I sometimes wonder how likely it is that we will ever find a solution to that. Um, so I try to make it a bit more practical and relevant in the sense that uh, the question that we should discuss is, could we as people live the lives that actually we want to live? And there we must, for example, be aware of the fact that we are in a society which is about uh, c consuming products and where there are stakeholders which try to influence all the time to buy products, for example, and which just manipulate, as you could say so, to um, show behavior, buying behavior, for example, that then is for the benefit of some people who are selling us products, for example. So for me, this is the real practical free will problem. Now, just one example, this consumerism example, but with the general question, how can we live as we actually want to live with all these pressures that we are seeing in so many places in our society? And um, and it's, it's very difficult. Um, so you asked me also, how is it possible? And I think the only chance that we have, I mean, there is really a lot of determinism, our bodies, our brains, the society, uh, our habits also, um, I think the really the only chance that we can have is, is I don't want to sound repetitive here, but is in the end self-reflection and awareness. So become aware of the motives that we have for our decisions and what is shaping our thoughts, maybe even already since our uh, childhood in some respects. Think about attachment theory, for example, which is, I think, one of the best psychological theories that, that we have. So to some extent, even when we are adults, even when we are like 40 or even older, there are still patterns in our thinking which have a very, very long history. And there I think maybe even yoga and, and Western psychology, they could also shake hands and say, here we all have knowledge to contribute to understand better how we people are, um, how our minds are formed and, and how these patterns are actually um, active and how they stay active. Yeah, okay. So the kind of bottom line would be that we could never escape the socialization processes and also biological processes that we are subject to, but that this does not necessarily hinder us from living our authentic life if we are self-aware of these processes. Yeah, uh, that, that would be a good conclusion. So um, I don't know if I would say that it's really impossible. I would have to think more about it, but I would say it's really, really very mm -hmm. hard because there are so much you could say natural and social pressures on, on what we are doing. And we are getting into a very deep philosophical question, like what is the personality, for example? Uh, what is the, the mind? Who am I at all? So these would be questions <laughs> which I think would take more time than, than we are having here. Um, but, <laughs> but I think I hope that I at least could hint at a way that I find promising uh, to find uh, a way to first become aware of how our mind works, you could say, and then maybe to improve it in such a way that we think that's the person that I want to be and that's the life that I want to live. And that's what I would call authentic then in the end. Yeah, Yeah. thank you so much for these insights. Uh, these were my main questions for today. And I wanted to end this podcast with three rather lighthearted and quick questions. Mm -hmm. um, what I always find interesting is uh, book suggestions. Mm. So can you give us your favorite book suggestions of 2019 or maybe the first half of 2020 that you read and yeah i thought was good yeah I, this is uh catching me a bit uh, unprepared because i'm reading so many books i have to admit that uh i tend to forget actually already pretty soon i mean i'd say a, a, a lifetime uh, a lifetime suggestion that i could make uh, where uh, 
literature and, and some of the philosophy that I've been talking about come together would be um, Hermann Hesse's uh, Zidata, which is now, I think, actually turning 100 years next year. And actually, I, I plan to go to India and read it there at the Ganges River, because this is also a big uh, book about India. And uh, it's very interesting that this book is still still read by people also in your generation, so, so, many time, so many years after it has been written. And for the rest, uh, maybe we, c we can post a PS to the... <laughs> to the podcast where, I, if it's a more recent <laughs> suggestion, where I uh, could think about this for a bit longer. I'm sure that we can do that. What about your favorite all-time movie? Yeah, that would be, I think, uh, Requiem for a Dream, uh, which is uh, a very confronting movie about addiction, actually. And it's I think it's playing in sometimes the 80s or the 90s in New York, which had a huge drug problem. And it's actually telling us also a bit about what human life can be about and desires, what they can do with us and, and, and the problem of addiction, which is actually also a great novel, by the way. So, um, but uh, the movie, if you're prepared to face some confronting facts about uh, about this topic, then it's it's really a great suggestion, I think, yes. Okay, I will see if I find it so that we can put it in the show notes as well for the people who might be interested. And lastly, a bit more local information. What is the place in Groningen that you miss going to the most in these times? I'd like to say two places and uh, the, the first, I mean, both of them, they also have really an autobiographic meaning for me. And the first place is that, I mean, I, I've been a vegetarian now for a very long time. And when I moved to Groningen now a bit more than 10 years already ago, I was a bit concerned whether um, whether there would be decent vegetarian food. <laughs> and, uh, well, I'm, I'm not really making advertisement, mm. not benefiting from this in any way or profiting from this in any way <laughs> but really the the cafe blah blah as it is called very close to our university is i think the restaurant where i go to most frequently and the second one i mean without where you can go without paying is uh, also very close to our faculty in the Norderplanzun, and there is this small um, place with the, the 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 fountains and there is one particular bench it's actually also close to the cafe in the i think it's called sondag now uh, presently Sonder. Mm -hmm. has been changing names many times in the recent years but uh, there is this this bench close to the water and after i had my job interview in march 2009 so now a long time ago already i sat there for a while and i would then was asking you could actually say self a moment of self-reflection i was asking myself uh would Groningen be a good place to work and a good place to live and uh, actually at the end of that day i already got the decision that they would like to hire me and now i'm still around there so this is a place where I, in the course of the years, also like to return and sit and look at the water and the, 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 the ducks and other animals that are running around there. Uh, and then to just reflect about how life is going on and, and maybe how I would like the future to look like. Yeah, very beautiful. Hmm. Stefan, thank you. It was very nice talking to you. You're welcome, and, Nina. Um, hmm. Also, thank you for taking the time to record this podcast today. Sure, I also enjoyed it. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. You too. This podcast was a production of MindWise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen.